Chapter 18 Ninanaba, The Long Walk to Fort Sumner The fall season was being pushed along by the cooler winds. The Nabeho people could be seen looking into the sky to search for the signs of cooler weather. The people could also be seen looking toward the west or toward the northwest. They were looking back to their Keya land. They wondered if any of their crops had survived the assault brought on by Doyil Dene, the intolerable one, Kit Carson and his soldiers. Nananaba also looked westward. Her thoughts went back to the many pots that were filled with corn. There was the pot filled with blue corn, one of white corn, another filled with yellow corn, and there was the pot that held the corn of many colors. She did not know when she and her daughters and her daughter-in-law would come back to their land and find the treasures she had buried deep in the side of the hill. Her thoughts were interrupted. It was early in the morning when the Nabehu people heard the bugle sound once again, only this time it was different. The sound was louder, bolder, and more determined in getting everyone's attention. With the soldiers ahead of them, to the side of them, and to the back of them, Hashkehyishnaba and Ninanaba, and their youngest son and their daughter-in-law and their adopted children joined the Nabehu people and began their long walk to Fort Sumner. From the oldest person to the youngest, everyone carried a pack. Some had their packs slung around their neck, over their shoulders, on their back, or just being carried in their hands. It was getting cold, and the packs were a source of warmth, as the pack kept the thin, cold wind from sneaking its way under the Nabehu people's clothes. Nananaba carefully wrapped their little adopted baby girl in her cradle board, but before she placed her little one in her cradle board, she placed wrapped jerky in the part of the cradle where the baby's feet would be. She further stuffed little pouches made of deer hide into the sides of the cradle board. Each pouch was bulging from the ground corn that was stuffed into it. There was the finely ground yellow corn, the white corn, the blue corn, and the red corn secretly tucked away in each pouch. Among Ninanabot's possessions was a bundle that held two necklaces made of beautiful white shells. The necklaces were for her daughters. The bundled necklaces were also placed in the baby's cradle, held safe by the coarse rug blanket that was wrapped around the baby. It was important for the creator to recognize her daughters as Nabehu. Ninanabat knew the necklaces and the Nabehu language they spoke would identify her daughters as Nabehu. Seeing the little bulges on the sides of her adopted baby's cradle board, Ninanabat pulled her baby close. Our little one, even in her infancy, 
is carrying her share of our precious possessions, thought Nananaba as she held the little one close. Just like us, she is carrying her load. Nananabot thought as she placed the cradle board in its holder that was slung across her shoulders. She then had her youngest son help her place the sling that held the cradle board on her back. The soldiers who were riding their horses set the pace. These men forget their horses take longer steps than we do, Nananabat said as she walked quietly beside her husband and their children. The horses kicked up rocks as they led the procession, and the rocks easily rolled into the path of the Nabehua people as they walked. Hashkehyet Napa asked Nananaba, Shekek echo, Yudnat Shiyajev, Akwadot Sethlapak Ahta Dilthrasta. Walk in my footsteps, my little one, so you won't trip on a rock. Hashkehyet Napa wanted to make Nananaba's journey a little easier. The people were careful of where they stepped. To kick a rock would send rocks into the path of a fellow Nabehu so the people were careful not to kick the rocks out of their way. As the sun drifted along its path above the people, the thin winds became warmer, making their walk easier. The procession made its way eastward. The people began to see pieces of bones scattered here and there. Upon closer observance, they noticed some bones were parched, into a brittle white color. Ashkehyetnapa saw the bones and noticed they were not the bones of sheep, goats, horses, cows, coyotes, or other animals. Instead, they were the bones of people. The skin on his back began to tingle. He quickly looked behind him and noticed Nananapat was following closely behind, murmuring soft words to the little one she carried on her back. He began to pick his way more carefully so as to avoid stepping near any bones and directed his wife's attention toward the eastern sky and the clouds they saw hovering over the horizon, saying, The clouds are moving toward the east. He did not want her to see the bones. Their shadows were barely visible, indicating the sun was resting overhead. A shrill sound was heard, and the soldiers began to circle the procession of Nabehu. They barked orders of stopping to rest. The people began to quietly whisper, cautioning one another about the bones that lay on the ground. Ya de Aide, notice that! The older women were heard whispering. The people wanted to move on, but the soldiers refused. As the people began to drift to another area away from the bones, the soldiers became nervous and began whipping the people back into place. Nananabat noticed what the people were avoiding, 
but did not want to look down at the bones near her feet and the feet of her adopted children. Hashkehilnapa asked to speak to an interpreter. Tell them to allow the Navajo people to keep walking. My people are able to. There are a lot of unknown people's bones scattered on the ground. It is better that my people do not walk on the bones. Tell them for us, please. The interpreter relayed the message. The soldiers looked in the direction of Hashkehilnapa and his family and asked, What is wrong with resting right here? We will continue when the people are rested, one soldier barked. The soldier relayed the message back to Hashkehilnapa. Hashkehilnapa turned toward his people and said, Stand in one place. Don't walk on the bones that are scattered on the ground. Ninanabat looked around her feet and the feet of her children. The people looked down to make sure they were not standing on a bone and planted themselves in a spot where there were no bones. Pretty soon everyone was talking about the bones. Were these the bones of their loved ones who disappeared? Were they the bones of those who were kidnapped? Were they the bones of those who were killed? Maybe they were the bones of the Nabehu who were herded ahead of them to Fort Sumner, but who did not have the stamina to continue the walk. Nananabat needed to divert her attention from the bones. She turned her thoughts toward her daughters and her son to escape from the thoughts of the bones. She tried talking to their adopted children, but her own missing children's faces continued to crowd her mind, flowing in and out of her memories. She refused to allow her mind to visit the thought that her children's bones could be the ones scattered here. Her heart ached, but she had to fight to control her thoughts. In her efforts to guard her young adopted family, Ninanabat refused to unwrap the little one in the cradle. Loosening it from its wraps would expose the little one to the signs of death that surrounded them. She encouraged the children to drink only water and to wait until later to eat by saying, Only drink water. Up further, you can eat some boiled mutton, she told her children. Her adopted children wanted to sit down, but she scolded them, telling them to remain standing. They have brought us into a place of death, a graveyard, she said. Ninanabat's heart began to beat wildly as she spoke quietly to her husband, saying, 
Have they just brought us out here just so they could kill us all? Don't look at the bones on the ground, she ordered her adopted daughters, because they were to avoid any signs of death. Her adopted daughters would someday be the bearers of life. To look at death would hinder that delicate process. Ninanaba explained to her adopted children, Look toward the eastern and southern horizons. Look for little animals, she ordered. She participated in the activity by pointing out birds, stout trees, bushes, and clouds that hung listlessly in the sky. Hushkehilnapa stood near his wife, opening and clenching his fist until his palms began to ache. His head began to pound as he corralled the thoughts of his two daughters' bones strewn over a desert floor. His head pounded, his hands ached, his heart hurt. He could not look at his beautiful Ninanaba. Where was he leading her and their adopted children? He had promised his wife that he would find their children. He had also agreed to accompany his people to this new land to protect them. He jerked his head up, looked wildly into the eyes of his fellow Nabehua warriors. The few who were left had the same wild look in their eyes. Seeing the bones caused the Nabehua people to become agitated. The human bones caused the soldiers to become worried that the people might get out of control. The soldiers began to exhibit signs of anger because the people were so unsettled. They quickly gulped down their food and ordered the people to move on, whipping at the men, the sheep, and the goats to hurry them along. Ninanabat thought of the people who had left the fort several days before. They had also been ordered to walk toward the east. Were these their bones? She wondered if they had been driven in the hot sun, and that was why so many bones were scattered about. Looking toward the eastern sky, she vowed to protect her family from death as long as she could. As long as I live, they will all survive this journey, she promised herself. Ninanabat jumped when she felt a heavy hand on her shoulder. It was her husband. Life flowed back and forth between them as their touch strengthened the other. They looked back to see their youngest son wipe the sweat off of the face of Tsek Iznaz Ba, their daughter-in-law and his young adopted brothers. They noticed their son had lost a lot of weight since they left their home, but his muscles appeared strong. Nanana Ba caught her son's eye and whispered a simple but powerful word, Shiyaja, my little one. At that word, her son smiled back, stood straighter, repositioned the pack on his back, and took the hands of the young children at his side. With their eyes on the eastern horizon, the Nabehua people moved 
on at the orders of the soldiers. The procession followed the dusty rocky road until sunset when the soldiers ordered the people to form a large circle. The soldiers, afraid the people would begin to act strange again, jabbed at the Nabehu men with the ends of their rifles and whips. As the men were forced to move toward the middle of the circle, the soldiers' voices penetrated the confusion by demanding that the children surround the men by creating a human ring around the Nabehu men. The children cried and hid their faces in their mother's thick rug dresses as the soldiers tore the children away from their mothers, forcing them toward the outer circle. The frightened women were then ordered to complete a circle that would surround their children, husbands, sons, brothers, and acquaintances. Hushkehilnapa told the men to obey the soldiers. They are crazy. They do not value life. Settle down. Think of your children. Your children have not been trained the way a warrior has. Have sympathy for them. If you do not listen, they will torture your children. If we do not obey, they will kill our spouses and all of our children. Pray for your spouses and your children. The men obeyed. Many prayers being voiced could be heard in the tense night air. Hashkehilnapa and his youngest son begged the Creator to protect their loved ones. The soldiers stole hungry looks at the young girls as they pushed and shoved the confused crowd. An interpreter told the Nabehua prisoners in Spanish that the following nights would be spent in this fashion because the procession had reached New Mexican and Pueblo territories. Few Nabehua heard or understood the message. The soldiers were ordered not to let any Nabehua be given an opportunity to conduct a raid upon the peaceful Pueblo and New Mexican people. The Nabehua people understood the names of the Pueblo and New Mexican people. That was the reason the men and the boys were herded into the middle of the circle, the people guessed. As darkness began to crawl over the circle of people, the women became afraid because they were left vulnerable. The ring of protection the soldiers created with their horses and wagons was not secure. The people were hungry, but the soldiers scolded them, reminding them in Spanish that they had been given the opportunity to eat earlier in the day, but the people themselves had decided not to eat. The people were still left confused because of their limited understanding of Spanish, and yet 
The soldiers felt they had conveyed their message to the prisoners. The interpreter took over and told the people the reason the soldiers did not want anyone taking out their food to eat. You wet ego belashed la idanes, nanigi dabits in betraco, dachiando. Hue equatajiza. You wet ego da haje da dendo. How could anyone eat among the bones of humans who have been killed? They, the soldiers, did that. How could they have no heart? The older women stated. Nananaba placed thick rug blankets on the ground for her children and told Tek Iznazba to sleep right next to her and the baby. No one could sleep. Nananaba watched the stars march across the sky. Far into the night, the women kept watch over their daughters. Through the thick darkness, a young woman screamed. Commotion was heard over the dusty ground, then silence once again. Muffled sounds of struggling could be heard on the outskirts of a human circle. One older woman loudly announced her daughter was dragged off by someone. The Nabehu men began to stir, then shots were heard near the center of the human circle. The people could not sleep that night. They only longed for morning, but they were also afraid to see what the morning light would reveal. In the white light of the early morning dawn, the Nabehu men stood motionless as they viewed a father and a son laying side by side, one shot in the heart and the other in the face. At the outskirts of a human circle, a Nabehu woman squatted. She was inspecting the prints left in the dirt where her daughter's scanty bedding lay. All she could see were moccasin prints, occasionally imprinted in the dirt. The woman waited for her daughter to come back, but as the sun rose to fully cast light upon the circle of Nabehu people, there was no sign of the woman's daughter. The woman remained in the same position, crying softly as sobs shook her body. The soldiers were once again barking orders at their captives. Nananaba and the Nabehua women gently asked the squatting woman to get up and cooperate with the soldiers, but she refused. She just wanted to sit and stare in the direction she saw her daughter's footprints disappear into. Sad, angry voices carried the news of the disappearance as Nabehua people cast compassionate looks toward the woman. Soon, the mourning woman disappeared into the crowd, the same way her daughter had disappeared into the night. Hashkehil Napa was extremely agitated, thinking about the incident. Where was the Nabehua leader who was responsible for the mourning woman and her daughter. He hated to think the thought, but he was relieved the woman was not from his group of people, those he was responsible for. He was glad his Nananaba and Tek Iznazba were safe. He was angry that he was rendered helpless by his captivity. He remembered his own words that he told his warriors 
on numerous occasions. Na bahi jalingo dohak ehotodotleske jazida. A warrior should never be on the weak side of the war. The thought burned into his mind as he recklessly shook his blanket. Shehani do chichekohodo niltan sind eh. I never thought that would happen to me. Hashkehilnapa thought in anger. He could not bear to look at his youngest son. Two Nabehua families who were unacquainted with one another before the incident were left to mourn the disappearance of their daughter and the death of their father and son. But the tragedy began to unite them. The men at least were allowed to dig out a shallow grave by hand as the soldiers stood by asking one another if they had taken their turn with the young girl. They stood and proudly gave accounts of the wild excitement they had experienced with their fighting prisoner. Two soldiers laughed about having volunteered for the army and finding themselves not in the midst of battle and the civil war, but driving some crazy Indians onto a reservation. I finally fought for what I wanted, one laughed as he winced when he proudly showed the deep scratches in his chest. She is the wildest one yet, he laughed with satisfaction. The soldiers discussed the young woman's death, saying she died needlessly because she would not submit to us, but we can't record that as a cause of death. One less Indian will not be missed at the fort, but the Indian agent is the one who can cause us problems. After the discussion, one young Navajo female's death was recorded as death from starvation. The soldiers knew it was the safest answer that would not be questioned. Kit Carson made sure the Navajos would not be eating when he led his campaign against the Navajos by burning their fields and crops. Yes, death from starvation will not be questioned. Look at them, the Navajos, most of them look malnourished, one soldier growled, disappointed that he was not allowed to get near the girl before she died. When Hashkehyilnapa was reunited with Ninanaba and his family, he became overcome with so much emotion. He held his Ninanaba, gently allowing silent tears to fall into her hair. His tears mingled with his emotions of relief, knowing his family survived. The composure he was forcing upon himself to ensure the safety of his people and the anger that rose within him. Nenanaba mumbled, your people are encouraged by your presence. I am also encouraged by your presence. We will not be treated like this for forever. We are following our people because we want to see our children again. At his beautiful wife's words, Hashkeh Yilnapa felt stronger. 
In sadness, the procession continued the eastern journey in captivity for a few more days. The solitary mountain peak they had watched as they marched closer to it was now to the northeast of them. It was beautiful. It was Mount Taylor, their sacred mountain of the south. In awe, the people cast hopeful looks toward the mountain. Prayers were voiced, prayers for safety and the safety of the children. As the setting sun cast a golden yellow glow on the land, the people came to an extremely rocky area. Many at the front of the procession took in their breath sharply. Underneath them lay a bed of small lava pebbles. They were near Tzotzil, Mount Taylor, the area where dramatic events took place in the lives of their ancestors. The older people raised their gaze toward the immediate southern horizon. Lingering memories began to tell the story. It was there, long ago, that the deities slaughtered the giants who were terrorizing their ancestors. Kadesh Adani Ka, are we near that area? Many people were heard to say, Oh, yes, was the quiet, restrained response. The soldiers began to sense the apprehension of the people. They sought out the interpreter to find out why the people were beginning to become agitated. The interpreter went around asking the Nabehua why they were acting like they were afraid. He questioned different ones, but he could not understand what they were talking about because he was not familiar with the subject. Becoming tense, the soldiers insisted on learning what caused this morose blanket to fall upon their Navajo prisoners once again. It had happened before when they stopped in the desert where the human bones were strewn about. The soldiers told the interpreter they were afraid the Navajos were planning a raid. The Nabehu people seemed more lively. We cannot have these savages raiding, one soldier barked. They are in Pueblo Indian territory. We have to keep complete control of these savages, they told the interpreter. The soldiers closely observed their surroundings. They explained to one another how it would be difficult for a Navajo man to run fast in this rough terrain of lava fields. Everywhere Nananabat looked, she saw lava fields rising and falling in the distance. The sharp lava pebbles cut into the soles of her moccasins. She looked around. Many people were barefoot, having walked out of their moccasins. Nananabat remembered back to a time when they were still on Black Mesa and again to the time when they were being held at the fort. Hashkeh had told his people not to discard the tops of their moccasins. Nats 
When you walk out of your moccasins, do not discard the top of the moccasin that covers your feet because it is sacred. Just like a rainbow touches the ground on both sides of the ark, this part of the moccasin is sewn to the soul, so it is a rainbow. The top part of the moccasin is the sky, and the bottom of the moccasin is the earth. Where the top of the moccasin and the soul are sewn together represents the meeting of the sky and the earth, the horizon. If it is discarded, there will be no more rain. We will just be suffering even more because of it. Nananaba looked down at her moccasins. They were holding up well. She silently thanked her father. She looked at her children's moccasins. They all seemed to be intact. Once again, she silently thanked her father. He was the one who made moccasins for everyone. Many Nabehua people wanted to go look for bark so they could place it inside their moccasins, but the soldiers would not let them wander very far. Very little vegetation grew in the lava fields. Ninanaba heard the Nabehua people accuse the soldiers of taking all they had. All their horses had been claimed by the soldiers. If only they could kill one horse and butcher it. So much of the Nabehua people's troubles would be lessened with the butchering of one horse, they believed. The elders explained they could eat the meat and use the skin to make soles for their worn-out moccasins. They talked about using the sinew to sew their torn moccasins back together. Many people's feet would have a chance of healing, they voiced. As it was, many Nabehua people were being forced to walk on their blood-drenched, swollen feet. There were so many herbs that could be found in the vicinity of their sacred mountain, Tzotzil, Mount Taylor. The people saw the herbs, the sand, the pitch, thickly drooping from the pinyon trees in the distance. Healing was so close and yet so far. Ninanaba hated that the soldiers had thick soles under their moccasins, boots, so their feet were kept safe by their moccasins. They did not care whether the Nabehua people's feet were blistering, being torn to shreds by the lava pebbles, as the lava pebbles became embedded in the exposed flesh of the people as they were being forced to walk through the lava fields. Another night was spent on the lava fields. Ninanabat told her husband to butcher two goats. 
nichte nebke eltrunde hast ord aschodat ise elle nehschgiki beket ahndadol kal nichte net opatahajoba bekelche yihas kai our people's shoes are all torn at least we can place strips of goat skin on the soles of their feet i feel so bad for our people they have walked out of their moccasins ninanabat described the two goats by the texture of their hair quickly before the sun touched the soldiers faces to wake them hashkehilnabat reverently took his yaka rope and began walking toward the makeshift corral used to shelter the sheep goats cows and horses it was going to be difficult to select the two goats his wife had told him to capture and butcher the sheep and goats belonged to her so he had to rope the ones she wanted butchered as he silently picked his way around his sleeping people he kept an eye on the soldiers who slumbered in their sitting position with the long rifles cradled in their arms he neared the large flock of sheep and goats they began to stir bleeding first with muffled sounds then louder as he moved among them a rather short stocky soldier who spoke broken english jumped up from his sitting position and began to yell loudly firing shots into the air he began to run but his foot caught on a ledge of lava sending him sprawling shots ran out soldiers scrambled over the lava fields some with boots on some without as their bare feet met the sharp jagged surface of the lava flesh was torn commotion ensued another round of shots were heard several dull thuds were heard then the struggling of breath was heard the people gasped whom did they shoot was the question that screamed through ninanabat's mind at the feet of the soldiers lay three sheep struggling for breath ninanabat became weak she could not see through the crowd was someone hit is that what she heard yes someone was hit someone quietly said ninanabat's stomach contracted making her sick and weak she remembered the conversation she had with her husband the evening before I cannot bear to watch our people suffer from the rocks we are being forced to walk through. The mother's feet are being torn because they carry their children, making them heavier, which causes the rocks to cut deeper. 
How are we to protect ourselves when we walk in one another's blood? Ninanabot thought as she shuddered at the thought. She spoke gently but firmly to her husband, saying, I have moccasins. My father made me these moccasins, but they are being torn to shreds too. Our daughter-in-law will lose the soles of her moccasins as we try to leave this place. As soon as you find an opportunity, cut the throats of two goats and butcher them. At least we can have some meat to eat, and the people can wrap the skins around their bare feet. Even though she had not spoken to her husband since the evening before, she knew it was he who had caused the commotion because she had heard the sheep and goats bleeding before the shots were heard. All of a sudden she felt a heavy sense of loneliness overcome her. Ninanabat's adopted daughter took her mother's hand and led her through the crowd of Nabeho people. Ninanabat saw that the soldiers had pointed their guns at Hashkehilnaba as he knelt on a bed of lava pebbles while holding a goat down. The legs of the goat had been tied, and its throat had been cut. It was obvious the goat was dead. The soldiers shouted orders at him, but he did not understand. What he understood was that his people needed him. He ignored the soldiers and began to cut the abdomen of the goat open. Each time he sliced another section of the goat's abdomen, the soldiers raised their rifles as if in defense of the goat. Without hanging the goat up, Hashkehilnapa swiftly skinned the goat, degutted the goat, cut the joints of the limbs apart, and handed the meat to the Nabeho men standing nearest him. Two men joined him and finished cutting the meat apart while Hashkehilnapa began to butcher two more goats. In a short time, very little was left of the goats as the men carried the meat back to the circle of women. The hearts, lungs, and livers were reserved while the intestines and stomachs were thrown down a ravine in the interest of time and because of the lack of water to properly wash them. Quickly, five Nabeho men butchered three sheep. Other men cut the sheepskins into strips to tie onto their people's feet. The meat was divided up among the people. Just as quickly, Hashkehilnapa sliced the goatskins into narrow strips. The soles of the children's feet were fitted to create a sole for their torn moccasins first. 
Then the women's feet were fitted. The men were given thin strips of the goat skin to bind to the bottom of their feet. While the men were busy, the women sliced the meat into thin strips, chopped at the salt rocks they carried with them, then ground them into powder and covered the meat with salt powder. With a new supply of jerky being cured, Ninanabot reached into her adopted baby's cradle and pulled out several pieces of jerky and handed them to her family. Still weak from the excitement of the early morning shootings, she steadied herself with the walking stick her husband had made for her before they began their journey. She heavily sat down on a ledge and slowly chewed some jerky, softening and moistening it for the baby. The soldiers who had cut their bare feet on the bed of lava pebbles had their wounds dressed. As they were being tended to, the soldiers told the Nabehua people they could build fires and cook the meat for themselves. Through the interpreter, the Nabehua people learned the soldiers were allowing only small fires. They claimed they were afraid of raids by the Mexicans or Pueblos. The people gathered around their fires as they cooked their small portions of the meat of sheep and goats. Having been revived by the rest and the food, the people made themselves ready to move on. The soldiers saw the Nabehu were ready to move on, so they unhobbled their horses and hitched them up to the wagons. At the sound of a shrill whistle, the procession was moving again. The Nabehu men could only look in the direction of Tzotzil, Mount Taylor, where there was an abundance of herbs, fuel, and food. When Hashkehilnapa rejoined his family, he vowed he would steal away and run to the mountain to obtain the wealth it had to offer. He voiced his concern about the need for a sweat bath, but at the time that seemed to be the least of their worries. As evening neared, the people were told through the interpreter that they were walking through enemy territory. Nananaba could feel anxious eyes watching them and following them through the valley of lava beds. The many enemies hid themselves in the yellow rocks that lined the sloping ridges on the north and south of the path they were forced to follow. Tzotzil, Mount Taylor, was now to the northwest of them. Their sacred mountain turned into a deep gray purple as it watched them settle down for the night. The Nabehu people looked to the mountain for comfort as they prepared their bedding for the night. <laughs>